1: Hello everyone, this is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel, and today we are honored to have Professor Mary Flannery with us. Dr. Mary Flannery is a professor of medieval studies at the University of Bern in Switzerland. Her work focuses on the intersections between literature, reputation, and emotion in later medieval England, as well as on the post-medieval reception of medieval literature. And today she is here to talk to us about her book, Practicing Shame. Female Honor in Later Medieval England, published by Manchester University Press. Mary, welcome to New Books Network.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Mortessa.
1: Uh, Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, how you became interested in medieval literature and how this book came about?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So funnily enough, I got into medieval literature by way of Shakespeare. I was fascinated by his history plays, which, uh, and particularly the the Henriad, what's known as the Henriad. So from Richard II through Henry, uh, Henry V. And I was interested in just how much rumor and reputation were themes in this period. And that kind of got me interested in looking at the history and literature of that time and seeing how reputation became a kind of weapon and a tool at this moment of real political instability in England's history. So I've had a long interest in reputation. Uh, It probably also stems from my coming originally from Los Angeles, which is the land of celebrity. Uh, And then after considering how reputation and literature were interlinked in this period, I got interested in the emotions that were attached to reputation and particularly to the loss of reputation. And so that is um, ultimately what led me to the topic of my book on shame.
1: Uh, well, when I was a student, I studied English literature myself, and we had this Shakespeare course. And I always knew I had to know something about medieval literature and history, but unfortunately, I was too lazy. So I guess this kind of podcast is how I'm making up for for what I didn't do when I was a student.
0: Excellent. Uh, so- Happy to help. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Great. So this book, Practicing Shame. Uh, so this is this seems to be generally in the in the category of history of emotions, a field that I guess I studied with started with. Uh, the the history of Middle Ages. So, can you briefly tell us what history of emotions is, and then uh, tell us how you define shame and what do you mean? Because in the book, you make this argument that uh, emotion is not something we have, but it's something we practice. So, it would be great if you could uh, elaborate on that.
0: Yeah. So, the history of emotions is—it's uh, a field of study that has been increasing in popularity and in significance over the past couple of decades. And it's a field that focuses primarily on two things. It focuses on emotions and feelings and their expression at different points in history. And it also focuses on the history of how feelings and expression and emotion have been understood at different points in time. Uh, but of course, one complicated aspect of this history is the question of what are emotions? What are emotions? How did they work? Where do they come from? Uh, And as you can imagine, there have been a lot of different theories about what emotions are and how they work from ancient times all the way up to the present day. Uh, It's been suggested that emotions are things or reactions that are kind of latent uh, in the body, things that we have. So, for example, humoral theory, which is something popularized through the writings of the Greek physician philosopher Galen, posits that there are different humors or elements within the body that then determine what kinds of emotions uh, or reactions we are likely to have. Then more recently, we have affect theory, which has posited that emotions are things that originate in kind of automatic reactions within the body that we then interpret and give meaning to. But this idea of emotions as things we do is something that comes out of the writings of people like Robert Solomon and Monique Scheer, who have really tried to take account of intention, you know, the fact that emotions aren't always things that seem immediate, automatic. Uh, They are things that we can cultivate and that we can shape. And so this is what has led people to think about how we generate or modify certain feelings. And that, in turn, leads to us thinking about emotions as things that we do, that we practice or perform. Uh, and so shame uh, is an emotion that might very broadly be defined as encompassing the the feelings that accompany disgrace, Uh, disgrace that's either experienced in one's own eyes, uh, or in the eyes of others. And some people have tried to distinguish it from things like embarrassment or humiliation, but I tend to think of these as existing on a kind of spectrum of shame. So spectrum of intensity, if you like, it's a question of degrees. And so, In thinking of shame as connected to practice, in this book, I'm trying to think about how sensitivity to shame Is basically the foundation of honor in the Middle Ages. And in my case, I'm focusing on how it relates to female honor specifically. And so, what I'm interested in is how are women in the Middle Ages encouraged to learn how to be sensitive to shame uh, and how to sort of train themselves, their behavior, their thoughts, their priorities in such a way that they are really um, preserving their honor by constantly. Hyper being hyper vigilant about avoiding shame.
1: Um, and uh, you talk about emotional practices as well in the book, and also there's this new term shame fastness. Uh, so can you tell us what are emotional practices, and then what is shame fastness?
0: Mm. So emotional practices, uh, if I'm using the, the, the phrase as it's been defined by Monique sheer, who's really, it's her work. That's kind of laid the foundation for the idea of emotions as kinds of practices, um, is essentially a term that encompasses all the choices and decisions that we make, the doings, the sayings, um, the thoughts that we have that we use to generate or modify certain feelings. Um, So as Monique uh, Scheer puts it, they're habits, rituals, and everyday pastimes that aid us in achieving a certain emotional state. And she gives a couple of examples. So, one example is courtship. Uh, you know, and all of the behaviors and uh, communications that are involved in that are, of course, intended to cultivate and communicate certain feelings, right? Desire, love, um, affection. Uh, but then there are other examples. So, for instance, the way that em- emotions are communicated via performance. And, of course, this gets interesting because. Uh, one of the concerns that uh, we tend to have about emotional performances when we see them, and one of the concerns that I explore in my book, is the question of whether or not the emotions that are being communicated there are genuine But um, Scheer argues that it's not so much about the emotional truth as it is about the fact that certain emotions are being conveyed with certain gestures, certain conventions. And this is its own way of sort of practicing or making an emotion. Um, And so that is, is hopefully some explanation of what emotional practices are. And then shamefastness is a term that it's now obsolete Uh, and it emerged in English in the 13th century as a way of describing a certain kind of, you could say, orientation with regard to shame, a disposition, an emotional disposition, as opposed to a kind of emotion that is felt. So most simply defined, uh, shamefastness is a kind of hypersensitivity to shame or a hypervigilance. Um, If you are shamefast, you are somebody who orients all your behavior in such a way as to avoid the possibility of shame. Um, But shamefastness actually eventually just um, falls out of use and in fact becomes bastardized as the word shamefacedness uh, when it's used to uh, refer to someone who is exhibiting signs of experiencing or feeling shame. But the original meaning is really all about a kind of hypersensitivity to the possibility of disgrace.
1: Uh, now, I guess it's clear why you 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 talk about shame or feeling as something we practice. And it's kind of very similar to the idea of gender that Judith Butler came up with, the idea of perform uh, those performative acts. And now here we have pro emotional practices. Um, and you talked about whether this, um, this, this, this emotion, this shame is genuine or not. We'll get into that soon. But before that, you uh you, you kind of make a distinction between who can feel it and who is expected to feel it. So can you elaborate on this point and also tell us how girls and women you did mention some of them, but it would be great if we could give examples or elaborate on the point on this, how they were expected to conduct themselves in, in public.
0: So um, first of all, I should note that uh, anybody could be considered shamefast in the Middle Ages. Uh, If you are shamefast, what you are doing is behaving in a way that demonstrates that you value your honor, your reputation. But in the case of women, uh, female honor was much more closely tied to their chastity, their sexual continence, and so if women wanted to demonstrate that they were honorable, they had to adopt behavior that showed just how much care they were taking to avoid sexual disgrace. And so what this meant is that when women were, and girls were out in public, they really had to be focusing on behavior, gestures, dress even facial expressions that communicated a certain kind of modesty so they would be soft spoken you know not bold or aggressive or assertive but kind of more retiring and hesitant They would also be in good company, you know, not likely to be out and on their own among men, uh, but among people with good reputations, most likely among women uh, who had good reputations. They would also not be exposing their bodies needlessly. They would really focus on keeping themselves covered uh, in a way that really communicated modesty. So in other words, in order to be seen as honorable, in order to communicate uh, how honorable they were! They really weren't just focusing on things like courtesy, you know, politeness. They were focusing on behavior that really communicated their modesty and their chastity.
1: Uh, and uh, you, you uh, by the was it a shame? It was also applied to men as well, but I'm guessing it's more specifically used for women. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, well, I would say that uh, shame is more specifically linked to chastity for women than it is for men. Uh, Men could certainly experience shame and disgrace, uh, and were also keen on avoiding it. But in their case, you could say that there were many more different ways in which they could experience shame and disgrace. And also, another key thing to remember is that in the case of men, honor was something that they could win. Uh, they could achieve it, but in the case of women, honor was something that was more about being just preserved and not lost. And I think that's one really key distinction between the two.
1: And uh, earlier you said that there were some concerns if these emotions or if this projection of shame was genuine or not. So how how was it both a something that was revered and respected at the same time? It was it was subject to suspicion.
0: So, um, yeah, that's a great question. And it kind of comes back to the whole notion of emotions as practices and performances. If you think about it, if an emotion is something that can be learned and that you can learn to Uh, communicate through certain facial expressions and gestures, then presumably it's something that you can also learn to fake. You can learn that, oh, if people want to see that I'm sad, I need to make my face look a certain way. Or, you know, in the Middle Ages, perhaps I need to tear my hair out or scratch my face uh, and make all these kinds of gestures. So in a way, funnily enough, as soon as you start to think of emotions as things that we can do or choose to do or choose to shape and modify, there's a kind of mistrust that can accompany that. And so, in the Middle Ages, if you're thinking about uh, female shame and how, in order to avoid disgrace and to demonstrate how shamefast and honorable they were, women had to behave modestly. They had to dress a certain way, you know, keep their eyes downcast, for example, not be too bold. Then you can see how that behavior is valued on the one hand; it's taken as a potential sign of honor, but on the other hand. There's always the question of whether that might just be a mask, a mask that could slip at any point in time. And so, what this meant for women is that they were kind of constantly under a sense of pressure to be proving just how honorable they were. You could say that their honor, their shamefastness was always an unfinishable work in progress.
1: Uh, when I was reading your book, I'm originally from Iran myself. And there was this poet living hundred years ago, a little bit more than hundred years ago, who had, who wrote a lot of satirical poems about, because in hundred years ago, still then women in Iran had to cover their hair. They had to preserve that idea of uh, female honor. And that there were a lot of satirical poems from that particular poet who was very critical of this women covering themselves in, 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 you know, hijab, uh, and you know, she, he basically was saying, How do you know it's genuine, right? The way they are covering them, so but you never know what is happening in, in her mind or what's happening in her heart, or what she has done before. This is only a, a front. So, when I was reading your book, uh, I was reminded of that of that poet. Uh, and, and you discuss, you just said that sexual continence is one of the main indicators of female honor. And also there was this language of shame uh, applied to women's bodies. Can can you talk more about that and give us some examples of that?
0: Mm, yeah. So um, in medieval England and medieval Europe, a, a woman's honor was primarily determined by uh, her perceived degree of sexual chastity. So in other words, uh, the more chaste uh, and virginal, or at least chaste uh, within marriage, she was deemed to be, the more honorable she was deemed to be. And so then, of course, the question is, well, how did that come about? The most basic reason for that is that, of course, when we're talking about a place like medieval England, we are talking about a society that is patriarchal. So this is a society in which men uh, are in control. They have the power. It's also a society that is patrilineal. Uh, So what that means is that not only are men in charge, but lineage, ancestry, uh, inheritance, succession – all of this is determined through the male line. And this means that it's very important to know who the father is (laughs) um, in every case uh, when there's a question of inheritance or descent or succession. And if you can't be sure of that, then things get really problematic really fast. Um, And, you know, this is a problem that relates to royalty as much as it does to the lowest peasant. So, If you want to make as sure as possible that you know who the father is in every instance, what you need to do is control women's bodies and control women's sexuality. And so this is one of the reasons why women were being taught to value their perceived chastity and sexual continence because it had value in the eyes of this patriarchal society for these reasons,
1: and uh, one of the most fascinating parts of the book was the post lapsarian origins of shame. Uh, that I found fascinating. would be great if you could talk about that.
0: Mm, yeah, absolutely. So in the Bible, we're told that, you know Eve goes out, she eats the fruit of the tree of knowledge. She supposedly persuades Adam to eat the fruit too, and that once they have both consumed it, their eyes are opened. They realize they are naked and they are ashamed. And then they immediately take steps to cover themselves. This is where the famous fig leaves uh, come in. And so this is both the kind of, you know, this is the story of original sin. You might say it's also the story of original shame. This is the kind of origin story uh, in the Middle Ages and in Christian culture as to where shame comes from. And some retellings of that story specify that the parts of their body that they cover, it's not that they, you know, put fig leaves on their heads, but specifically that they cover their genitalia, their privy members. So, for instance, uh, the late 14th century poet John Gower, in his poem, The Mirror de l'Homme, Uh, specifies that that is what they cover after they experience this sudden shame at their nakedness. And so basically what we see in that story is that the experience of shame that humans can feel is being depicted as a consequence of the fall of man.
1: And uh, you another interesting feature of the book is that you talk about the idea of shame and pain as a universal feature of women's birth. and then you do go on to talk about gyne- gynecological uh, treaties and uh, how shamefastness was required as both as a concealment and also exhibition of female chastity. So these are also interesting parts. It would be great if you could uh, explain more about them for our listeners.
0: Mm, Absolutely. I think that first I have to explain the the funny link between uh, the linguistic link between genitalia and shame and gynecology, because in Middle English, uh, words like "shamefuls" or the shameful parts could also be used as terms for genitalia. This could be both male genitalia. um, So the penis might be referred to as the the shame, uh, the shame limb or the shame yard. But most frequently, it was used to refer to female genitalia. Those were the shameful parts, the shame that women should cover. And in fact, midwifery, you know, a key aspect of gynecological obstetrical uh, practice was himself referred to in at least one text as shamecraft. Uh, So this is a skill that is basically defined in terms of shame. And all of this, of course, relates back to that origin story uh, of the fall of man and so, what I found when I started to look at some gynecological treatises that we see from later medieval England is that in some cases, these texts have references to. Uh, A kind of awareness that women are supposed to prioritize shamefastness. They're supposed to feel shame at uncovering or exposing their parts. This is a kind of natural consequence of being a woman in medieval society. And so some of these gynecological treatises are explicitly acknowledging that shamefastness can actually complicate the practice of women's medicine as a result of that. And in at least one case, uh, so it's a text known as the Knowing of Women's Kind and Childing, we even see a threat that's made to male readers of this gynecological treatise, because of course uh, it was primarily men who were considered to be the sort of main practitioners of women's medicine at that time alongside midwives. And so these men who are being given a text to read about uh, medicine concerning women's shameful parts are warned that they have to read this text with the appropriate kind of sensitivity to women's shamefastness in mind. And so that if they're reading this text just because they want to mock women or uh, shame women in some way, they they deserve to be cursed with a kind of vengeance. So we really see an awareness in these medical texts of women's hypersensitivity to shame in this period.
1: It was a fascinating thing, uh, thing you just mentioned about uh, the word for shame was was almost synonymous as genitalia. And I just checked it when you we were talking because I speak Farsi and the word, <laughs> we have this word which literally means the place of shame, which actually refers to genitalia as well. So the word in Farsi is sharmgah, which means the region of shame uh yeah it was fascinating it's the same thing in and it's it's it refers both to male and female genitalia but it's specifically for females i have never ever heard of it being used for male but in dictionary it is written for both but yeah but i've several times i've heard it in reference to female genitalia in a way a euphemism for for female genitalia is yeah the region of shame
0: Mm, I think in German, it's also, I think sham hair is how they refer to pubic hair. And I don't know if that's specifically for women or for both men and women, but the word shame, in fact, its etymology can be traced back to a Proto-Indo-European word, uh, meaning to cover. So it's interesting that we have this sense of a need for concealment, covering of secret places of the body that's kind of emerging in all these instances.
1: Right. Uh, let's talk about uh, different features of medieval conduct literature because that's where you have this ideal, the idea of an honorable woman portraying her uh, chastity or idea of shame. Can you talk about the uh, different features of medieval conduct literature?
0: Mm, so, medieval conduct literature is essentially um, it describes all of the kinds of texts that were written to tell men and women how to comport themselves in public. So it's about proper comportment in social situations. And we do have examples that are written for men, examples that are written for women. And in the case of conduct literature that's written for women, we see these texts really focusing on instructing women to behave in ways that communicate their chastities to others. So again, we're coming back to that notion of emotion as a thing you practice and perform and communicate intentionally to those around you. And so all of women's behavior in these texts is supposed to Uh, communicate how modest they are, but also avoid arousing any suspicion that they might be sexually incontinent. So these are texts that encourage doings and sayings that help women to hone that hypersensitivity to shame. And uh, we see a lot of different examples of how they do that. Um, Shorter texts like How the Good Wife Taught Her Daughter, for example, Uh, really use a lot of language of sort of self-surveillance. So we have a lot of language like look, see, be aware of this, Uh, think about how you're behaving, a real sense of sort of reflection on the self. And, uh, you know, pay attention to how you're behaving and how others might be seeing you. So we don't see a lot of uh, encouragement to go out and have fun and amuse yourself as much as you want. Uh, I, w-
1: I wanted to ask you about the idea of self-surveillance, which you just uh, talked about, and uh, some of the different types of advice that they provide to women. And I think it's uh, it's also common in other cultures, but I can't be specific, because as you're talking about these different type, how women need to comport themselves in public, I'm constantly reminded about Persian medieval literature and courtly love and how they expected their beloved to, to act or to be. And... Sometimes they knew it wasn't genuine, but they pretended for example, to, you know, they pretended not to, not to know or they tried you know they just turned a blind eye to it. Um, so how, how in general, let's, how did they promote a sense of shame? So it seems that the women were, had to be constantly aware that they needed to portray this sense of uh, shame or let's say shamefastness. And uh, that's where the concerns come. And did, uh, are there examples in literature where they actually try to feign it? Women actually trying to feign an idea of righteousness?
0: Yeah, there is one example that I discuss in my book, which is the example of Medea uh, in, I believe it's John Legate's Fall of Princes. And in this narrative, we see the moment when Medea is struck with love for Jason. But because Medea is so aware of how important it is to appear modest, appear chaste, um, she deliberately adopts that appearance. I think she even kind of uh, compels herself to blush, uh, you know, actually almost consciously tries to change her, uh, you know, the, 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 the appearance of her skin in addition to just her gestures and everything. So I think a text like that really demonstrates an awareness of just how consciously a woman might be able to generate this kind of behavior, and uh, certainly <clears throat> texts that uh, relate to the practice of courtly love, um, texts like the uh, famous uh, Roman de la Rose, for ex- uh, example, you know, the Romance of the Rose, really does promote the kind of idea that no matter how much a woman might protest. Uh, or might um, strive to appear chaste or resistant to being seduced mm-hmm. you should always presume that they really do want to be overtaken they want to be they want for their shamefastness to be defeated by men uh, which of course then puts women in kind of a no-win situation where they need to always be focused on performing their chastity protecting their sexual continence but this in itself then, kind of becomes a challenge that men can use to prove their own kind of masculinity.
1: And uh, let's talk about Chaucer, your professor of literature. I'm sure that could be your favorite part. I don't know. How did he problematize this idea of shamefastness in his work?
0: Yeah, well, in fact, it was Chaucer that sort of led to this whole book project, because there was a line in one of the Canterbury Tales, it's the Physician's Tale, which is a story about uh, the young maiden named Virginia, who is described as kind of the epitome of female chastity. And the line that is used to convey that is a line that reads, you know, shamefast she was in maiden's shamefastness. And I've, first of all, you know, it's not often that you see Chaucer just reusing a word or a concept like that in in a single line. And it was a word that I hadn't encountered before. That actually, so I was curious about that and why it was a concept that was being used so emphatically in this long description of just how virginal and virtuous Virginia was. And I think that. Both in this story and in another classical narrative of an exemplary chaste woman, which is the story of Lucretia, who was a wife, um, but a famously chaste wife, one who only loved and uh, had intercourse with her husband, um, at least until the horrible moment when she's raped. Chaucer uses these extremes because they are excellent, painful examples of what can happen when a woman practices uh, shamefastness and chastity to such an extent, you know, she practices these very desirable traits to such an extent that they provoke or invite a kind of male aggression. You know, it's, it's actually because of Lucretia's chastity, not just her beauty, uh, that Tarquin desires her in the first place and wants to rape her. And in the case of Virginia too, this emphasis on the fact that she is just ultimately shamefast seems to be the thing that provokes the man who wants to rape her to overcome that. And so I think that what Chaucer does there is he really sort of puts his finger on the problem that we have these two mutually exclusive things that really leave women with no option between, as he puts it, either death or shame, if their chastity is under threat.
1: And uh, you also talk about another writer, Thomas Huckcliffe, uh, who, who was he, and how did he contrast? It seems that the, he contrasted the idea of aggression and masculinity on the one hand, and then we have femininity and shamefastness on the other hand in his works.
0: Mm. So Thomas Hawkleve is a poet, but also a clerk who was writing in the early 15th century. And it should be noted, he is a huge Chaucer fan, um, someone who really looks to Chaucer as a kind of father figure. And he is in fact, the first writer to refer to Chaucer in those terms as a kind of father figure. <clears throat> and what we see in Hawkleve's writing is a real awareness of the extent to which Femininity is grounded in uh, shamefastness and kind of hesitation, timidity, modesty, and masculinity, or the ultimate ideal forms of masculinity. You might say, are really grounded in concepts of aggression, boldness. Uh, you know, a lack of hesitation. And you know, there's no hesitation in a really masculine man. He doesn't hold back. He speaks up. He is bold, and so he's aware of these two things, but at the same time. He also conveys in his writing a real awareness of the fact that both of these things could be faked. They can be performed. They can be practiced. They can be appearances that are simply adopted for a certain purpose. Whether that's a woman adopting a kind of apparent shamefastness in order to convey that sense of honor that might be attractive and socially valuable. Or, in his case, a man who is adopting a kind of guise of shamefastness, uh, really for comic purposes, and also to be very self-deprecating in a way that will then enable him to, in his poem La Mare Règle, ask for payment from a benefactor. You know, he's very self-effacing, mocking himself and his behavior in his youth. And ascribing that to a kind of almost maidenly shamefastness and inexperience and timidity, which then makes him... It puts him in a very good position to ask for money without seeming too bold uh, or too insistent and demanding. And so that's what's kind of interesting in hawkleeve's poetry. We see that he's aware that shamefastness is a practice and performance. Anyone can do it to a certain extent. But of course, for women, the stakes are different. They can't just they can't make light of it. Uh, it really can be a, a life or death. Uh, question, you know, the question, the issue of how well they develop their own shamefastness.
1: Uh, Let me move to contemporary times. When I was reading the book, and I'm sure our listeners, when listening to this podcast, well, we'll we'll start to think how contemporary, through that you're talking about later medieval England, but these ideas sound so contemporary as well, especially in the light of what happened a few years ago with Me Too movement. So, how? First of all, can you tell us what is the concept of an ideal victim in the case of a sexual harassment? And then do you see parallels or similarities between uh, the concept I discuss in this book and our contemporary times?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I have to say that you know this is a book that I, I took quite a bit of time to write. And when I began research and writing for it, I had just moved to England. And at that point in time, Uh, There were headlines about a recent sort of spate of honor killings that had been taking place. Honor killings being uh, moments when women whose sexual comportment is thought to have the potential to disgrace a family or community are killed by members of that family or community. And then by the time I was finishing work on the book, you know, we had, we had Trump as president of the United States. And I have to say that there were, there were just so many headlines and so many moments during his presidency when I thought, oh my gosh, uh, I've never felt that my research on medieval sh- female shame was so relevant as I do now. And I, I don't know whether to feel grateful about it or sick about it. I think I, I mostly felt sick about it. Um, so you know, if we think about the sort of emphasis on female chastity as a valuable thing and the origins of that and patriarchal society, patril- patrilineal society, then what we're really noticing is the way that emphasis is being put on women's primary role as bearers of children and not just for themselves, bearers of children to men or to specific men, um, and it's really hard not to think about things like uh, cases of sexual harassment or indeed sexual assault, in which we see a kind of um, interest in calling into question the the sexual honor or sexual continence of women in those cases you'll often see in rape trials uh, or uh, any question of a story of sexual harassment, questions related to, well, what did she do? Was she asking for it in some way? Um, How did she behave? How was she dressed? Was she drinking? (laughs) Um, As though these are the things that really, on which the question of whether or not these women were sexually assaulted or, or harassed really turn. And it's also hard not to think about things like uh, the way that so many seem to want to take away women's control over their own uh, birth control, birth related decisions, uh, as we're seeing at the moment in the United States. Again, the, the question is always you know, is the woman exerting the right kind of control over herself. There's a weird sense in which women are supposed to control their behavior in a way that demonstrates that they are so chaste that of course the, um, they must have experienced this kind of rape or harassment because everybody knows they don't drink, they cover their bodies, they never behave in a way that's sexually suggestive. But then on the other hand, uh, women are not the ones who are supposed to have control over what happens with their own bodies when it comes to the question of giving birth or deciding whether or not they can give birth. And so I think that what we see is a really awful kind of resonance between all of these kinds of issues And what we saw in the literature and life of later medieval England, when women were, again, being told to have a certain control over themselves and their bodies, but also uh, clearly being shown on a regular basis that they were not entitled to other forms of control over themselves.
1: Uh, Professor Mary Flannery, thank you very much for your time. But before ending this interview, is there any other book you're currently working on?
0: Thank you for asking. Yes, indeed. Um, I began, my first book was on shame uh, on fame. This one's on shame and now I'm working on obscenity. (laughs) So the, (laughs) uh, the project, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. I have to say, um, I I guess I'm working on sort of the kinds of words and concepts and jokes and behavior that are considered potentially shameful, you might say that, but it's a book that is on uh, Chaucer's obscenity in the Canterbury Tales, so specifically his uh, body use of sexual and scatological language and content in the Canterbury Tales and how that's been received over the past 600 years. So when has it been censored? When has it been celebrated? And uh, what does that say about Chaucer himself as an author and how he's been received over time? So I'm currently in the middle of writing that, and I'll, I'll let you know once I finish that book.
1: <laughs> great, 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 because I just wanted to, to secure a promise to talk to you about that yeah, book absolutely. as well. <laughs>
0: Anytime. time. It's wonderful,
1: and I think recently there was another book uh, published by Princeton University Press about wife called "Wife of Bath." If I'm not mistaken, yeah. So, mm-hmm. well, this one yeah. I'm, I'm really looking forward to. It. When when do you think it will be published? I mean, I know which publisher you're working with.
0: I don't know yet. I'm currently right in the middle of the five-year project that is going to result in the book, but (laughs) I'm hoping that you know, if you get back to me in a year, then I should have a better answer for you.
1: (laughs) Sure. I'll just put it in my calendar. Sure. (laughs) Uh, Dr. Mary Flannery, thank you very much for your time and sharing your thoughts with us on New Books Network.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Mortessa. It's a pleasure.